My communion text tonight comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise... She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, And said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." This is God's word. In the Bible, there's only one way forward, and that is to the cross. This passage, though very early in the biblical record, looks forward to the cross. We have it there in verse 15, something of a a pictograph of the cross, when he says, I will set enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. In the Bible, there's only one way forward, and that is to the cross. The reason is due to what's behind this act of rebellion long ago that we have each and all furthered. We are not directly in the story here, but it is our story nevertheless, Not just through likewise actions, downstream disobedience, actions qualifying as sinful, but down underneath our actions, the sin behind every sin of ours involves the same denial of God's judgment that's here in this text. In fact, we see in this story that the first doctrine to be denied was the doctrine of judgment. You shall not surely die. That's how the serpent put it to Eve there in the Garden of Eden. The action of eating 
the fruit of the tree God said don't eat from will bear no consequence for you. In fact, the serpent says, it's really to your benefit to do this because when you do, this will turn out good for you eating the fruit of this tree. Your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. We know this story not just because we've read it, but because we've lived it. Eve ate the fruit. Adam ate the fruit. So have you and I. But the story behind the story here is the actual denial of the doctrine of judgment. This is why the cross was preached to them, albeit in incipient form, but nonetheless there in verse 15. This is why the cross is preached to us. In the Bible, there's only one way forward, and it's to the cross. The place where God, in the person of his son, would subject himself to an experience of evil he did not need to have in order to know what evil is. When the serpent says to Eve, when you eat of this fruit and your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, it's a half-truth. Human beings ever since the garden learn evil by becoming evil ourselves, by participating in it, by giving ourselves to it. God, by contrast, knew evil by omniscience, not personal experience. The fall of man did not introduce evil. It placed us on the wrong side of it, under its rule, needing rescue. But we don't see our need for rescue immediately. They sowed fig leaves on themselves. We have our own ways of doing the same. Their newfound consciousness of evil. It was not a happy experience after all, even if the fruit tasted great. The aftertaste was guilt and shame. We know that taste. In our fallen state, we don't immediately see our need for rescue. Talk to an unbelieving friend about this. Talk to an unbelieving friend about the judgment of God. Go ahead and survey his or her opinions on it. They likely want to mute or deny it or grant themselves some sort of exemption from it. We want to believe that our rebellion is not rebellion, but it's our rights. It's our rights to our own person. It's freedom to be and do as we desire and even as we think we deserve. Talk to Adam and Eve about this freedom. Immediately when they indulged it, they also indulged in self-justification, if not self-exoneration. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And wasn't God responsible for the existence of both? Everything we do that's wrong is someone else's fault. If he hadn't said yes, I wouldn't have said yes. If she hadn't said no, or if she had said no, I would have said no. This is how we work our guilt and shame. I wouldn't have if it weren't for others. I would have if it weren't for others. Our defiance of God is in the denial. The denial that we have any responsibility for what's happened or didn't happen. We are self-affirmation addicts. And not just self-affirmation addicts, not only do we serve dark urges and want to call them lovely, but we insist that others do what we know we should do ourselves. We blame others 
for what we should own ourselves, this too is sin. The fall of man did not introduce evil. It placed us on the wrong side of it. We placed ourselves there with everyone else. We made the choice for sin. We seconded it. And the motion has carried through generations unanimously. This is why in the Bible there is only one way forward. And it is to the cross. And this is why what happened on the cross was a public spectacle. Because what happens in sin, as evidenced in the fig leaves of old, what happens in sin is privacy. It's distancing. And in that privacy, at those distances, we become capable of acts and compromises and avoidances we would have never imagined for ourselves. One of the dark gifts of freedom is the ability to distance oneself from accountability and consequence, which was true long before human society became complex enough so that it appears that only some people get away with the privacy and the distancing. This was true even when human society was just two brothers in a field just out of sight of the only kin they had in the world. I refer, of course, to Adam and Eve's sons. The cross for God's son didn't happen just out of sight, nor when Jesus prayed in another garden before going to that cross. His aloneness there wasn't hiding. What does the scripture say? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. That is to put himself in the personal experience of evil, to be treated as if he was guilty of it, though he wasn't, to be subjected to its worst. Jesus was treated on our behalf as our substitute, as if he was guilty of everything wrong, everything negligent, everything disordered. He took our place on the tree for what we've been taking from the tree for eons, whatever liberties that we want for ourselves. We take and eat. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And centuries later, Jesus, another Adam, would tell his disciples to take and eat. He would use the same verbs but this time in an act of redemption, an act for the redeemed. The verbs of rebellion become the verbs of redemption. Take and eat. God tastes death for us in the person of his son. He experiences evil on an instrument like the cross to make open our way to him, to give us a place at this table of gratitude, this table where every time we eat the bread and drink the cup, We declare until he comes again the gospel of grace for sin. Let's pray. With these thoughts in mind, Lord, we thank you that sin is not the last word. And it wasn't the first word. It's an intruder. It's invasive. But you are more invasive still. You entered time and space. You entered history in the person of your son, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, a Galilean from out-of-the-way places, 
who walked and ate and lived a life that we should live before you and died a death that we should die before you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking our place. And thank you as we come to communion tonight that take and eat resonates differently. That even that original act of rebellion is redeemed by your good act on our behalf. We thank you for this place, this time, this opportunity that is ours to take and eat as your people. We know, Lord, that our worthiness is not the question. We know that it is about your worthiness. That it is about what you have accomplished. And that in that accomplishment, you welcome us in to be your own. To be dearly loved and cherished. This is knowledge, this is wisdom that is too marvelous for us. But we thank you on this Good Friday... Good because you took our place. You took your judgment against our sin on our behalf. We thank you for this as your people, as a people of the gospel, as a people of gratitude. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.